0: Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ." And this is the Word of God. I'm going to speak this morning on biblical spiritual warfare. What does spiritual warfare look like in the Scriptures? one of the things that i do uh, for most sermons not every sermon but for any sermon or class that i prepare for whatever the subject is whatever the topic is i will usually go to wikipedia and that is the opposite of what you should do when you're doing research and you want solid information you never they would tell you in any school that you go to, you never want to cite Wikipedia. It's not a reliable source of information. This is not where you go. Uh, I go to Wikipedia to look at the subject because I want to know what the culture thinks of that subject. Not necess- I'm not getting my sermon material from there, but I am engaging with people who already have ideas they've heard about this. It's not like I'm introducing people to anything. Uh, they've already heard a lot of ideas about whatever we're going to talk about. I want to know what the culture's saying uh, about an idea. And I want to see how that jives with what Scripture says. Because I, you know, I am preaching relevant in the culture. But the last thing you really want to do is to get your ideas about God from the Internet. Uh, and this is what a lot of people do. Uh, Google is good for a lot of things, but don't let Google... Uh, Be the sole provider of your Bible knowledge because there are a lot of bad ideas out there about everything. There's bad ideas about every subject. God and the Bible and and faith, uh, they're not exempt. There's just a lot of people who create websites and there's just some bizarre things. This is why we own Bibles. This is why we have church. This is why we have preachers and ministers and teachers is to unpack what the Word of God says. What does Scripture say about a particular subject? At the top of the list of bad ideas on the internet about faith are ideas about spiritual warfare. Uh, and I, I have a, a friend, a man that I know that nobody here would know. He pastors in a town about 2,000 miles from here. and. I was talking to him one day and he felt like he was called to this town of 6,000 people uh, kind of off the beaten path because that town was one of seven cities around the world that held portals that the spirit world moved from heaven to earth back and forth. And he named off Paris and some other big cities, and then there was this other town that no one would have ever heard of, and he was called there to keep the portal open. Uh, And I I, I felt like he was a pretty solid guy in a lot of areas. I said, okay, I said, can I ask you where you got this this from? Where where did this come from? He goes, oh, no, that's easy. Go to www dot, and I'm like, there it is. Uh, And so I went to the website and uh, as I predicted, it was a really poorly done web page with a lot of misspellings. and it was, uh, it was kind of a train wreck of a website, but he had read this on the Internet, a man who knows his scriptures, and he was swayed by something that he read online. And I hated that because it was, you know, he had no biblical basis for what he was saying whatsoever. And I felt like he was a great man, uh, a solid man of God, but he had been swayed in this area because of something that he read online. And if that can happen to a pastor of a church, how much more can it happen to any of us who may read something or hear something You know, this is the ultimate authority. What I say has no authority unless it's rooted in the book. I I have no original ideas. I don't know if I've ever had an original idea in my life. Um, This isn't about having original ideas. This is about saying what does the Word of God say and then repeat it. I am a secondary teacher. I'm not here to give novel or new ideas. I am here to say what says the Lord through His Scriptures. But all of that said, there is a real battle. We have a real enemy, the Satan, Uh, and and there is a kingdom of darkness according to the Word of God. There there is a spirit world and we are going to fight. And what I want us to know this morning is in the middle of this fight, in the middle of this struggle, we can have joy and peace in the midst of this battle. It is a battle. It is a war. Life itself, outside of any powers of darkness, life itself is going to just throw curveballs at us constantly. Car troubles, financial troubles, relational troubles, those things come if there was no spirit world. It's just the the cares of life can get us down. And add on top of that that we are in a real spiritual struggle, but yet in the midst of that we can have joy and peace in the midst of the battle. We are in a war. The, The spirit of the Antichrist is here. It has always been among us and, and it reveals itself in different ways. The, the man of sin, uh, the, there is a man of sin, the, the Bible calls him the son of perdition, uh, that will embody the spirit of the Antichrist. And, and he has not uh, been revealed yet. And I don't know who he is or when he's coming, but the spirit of the Antichrist is at work in the world today. The Scriptures talk about it being at work in the New Testament. And, and so three things that we, we battle against we battle against the satan who is real the powers of darkness that they're real uh, we battle against my flesh who's my biggest enemy like i can resist the devil and he will flee according to scripture but i'm stuck with this guy 24 hours a day i wake up in the morning and here i am i'm i'm right there i never leave me and i am my own worst enemy uh, and third is just bad ideas bad doctrine bad uh, just doctrines about the Bible that we have to combat. And then add on top that we all have these self-defeating narratives that run on a loop in our mind that tell us that we're not good enough and all these things that we deal with and uh, <clears throat> that's, that's where the battle is. The battle is right here between these two points. This is where we fight is the battle of the mind. It, it's not geographic. We don't need to take dominion over zip codes. We need to take dominion over our minds. The battlefield is in our head. You don't know the battle that the person next to you this morning is fighting. That person may be walking through a real struggle in their mind, and you would not know it because that's where we fight. In Genesis 3, the enemy tries to create doubt in the mind of Eve by asking her, did God really say this? Our struggles start with not believing God's Word. Did God really say that? Is that really God's Word? It's the oldest trick of the enemy all the way back in Genesis. Did God really say that doubt and unbelief are our enemy that's why we need to know our scriptures your Bible says what it means and it means what it says and you can stand on it it is solid it is trustworthy it is eternal and this is why bad ideas are so dangerous so I want to establish some truths this morning about Satan and how he works in Luke chapter 4, the devil took Him up, Him being Jesus, the devil took Him up and showed Him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The, the devil does this panoramic view of all the kingdoms to Christ. And then he says to Him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Now there is a, there is a striking statement there if we believe our Bibles. We talk about Satan being a liar, and he is a liar. But in this particular moment, he's talking to Christ. He knows he can't lie to the Messiah. He is being on the level with the Messiah by giving him a panoramic view of all the kingdoms of the world and going, I'll give you authority to these because it's mine to give. It has been handed over to me. It gives us a real insight into uh, how the political world works. Uh, and all of this. It's, it's Satan that is the prince and the power of the air. He does have limited authority on this planet. In First John... John says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Here's John saying "The Satan has been given authority in this world. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, You were once dead, and and you were dead in the trespasses and sins, and whence, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places of Christ Jesus. So what Paul's doing here, if you look at verse 2 and verse 6, Paul's saying Satan's the prince in the power of the air. He's talking about the atmosphere. on this this earth. He has authority on this earth. And then when Christ regenerates you, you sit with Christ in heavenly places, and He elevates Christ and us above where Satan sits. That's the the word picture that, that Paul's doing is we're here and Satan is here, that we rule over his authority. Satan is the power of this culture but we are seated in heavenly places. We need to understand, have a revelation who we are in Christ Jesus. I am alive in Christ. I'm saved by grace. I'm raised up with Christ. I have power. I have authority through the blood of Jesus, through the Spirit of God that dwells inside of us. Paul writes to the church in Colossians 1, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. When we obey His Word, you put in this transfer request to be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God. If we're tired of living in darkness, if a person is tired of living in sin, tired of being lied to by the enemy and let down by this world, there is hope to say through the faith in Jesus Christ, through obedience to the Word, through the new birth experience, I can be transferred out of darkness into light. And it's all because Satan was defeated at Calvary. Without Christ, you are subject to the powers of darkness. Satan is a million times more powerful than you are without Christ. But with Jesus Christ, you're not. A preacher I really admire a lot named Terry Schock said in a sermon I was sat in, He said, you are kingdom-minded. The only question is whose kingdom? It's not a question of if you're kingdom-minded. You are kingdom-minded. It's just you will either serve the prince of the power of the air or you will sit in heavenly places with Jesus Christ. Darkness comes in many forms. We we like to say that Satan in his scripture robes himself, presents himself as as an angel of light. Uh, and if all of darkness and evil came in the form of, like, the combination of every horror movie you've ever seen, and hopefully that's not too many, but um, I, I I look at it and say I've seen two in my life. I was about 16 and 17 when I saw those two movies, and it was enough for me to know I don't want to ever watch anything like that again in my life. I knew too much at 16 and 17 and knew to know that what I was seeing was... Uh, uh, th- th- there was some reality to that and I said yeah and this was not coming from a like this righteous 16 year old who was just this you know prototype of what a Christian is and far from it the opposite of that um, wasn't doing everything right but I knew that I did not want to entertain those things in my mind. I was like no I that's uh, I, I don't need to watch anything else like that uh, but everything that we know about Satan and evil and darkness. If he presented himself like that, everybody would run from that. I don't want anything to do with that. But that's not how he presents himself. He presents himself subtly. He is a deceiver. Above all else, he is a deceiver. Darkness comes in many forms. It comes in the form of materialism. It comes in the form of pleasure. It can come in the form of comfort. He is an angel of light. And the devil's primary objective is not to make your eyes glow and make you levitate. He doesn't accomplish his purpose through theatrics. His primary objective is to destroy your faith in God. Hath God said. Jesus told Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Satan was after Peter. Jesus was trying to protect Peter's faith because doubt and unbelief are the tools of the devil. I think our prayer this morning is, Lord, help our unbelief. Increase our faith. I believe the Word of God. I trust the Word of God to mean what it says and say what it means. But Satan works in the sons of disobedience not only by blinding them to the glory of God, but by filling their heart with hunger for evil. Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, and Judas went away and conferred with the chief priests and captains on how he might betray Jesus. The chief priests see Judas coming to him as an opportunist that it was actually Satan incarnate inside Judas that was directing this. Not everybody comes to... Uh, it, 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 it's, i got to be careful here because I think everybody here this morning, I know you all came to worship God. I don't have any doubt about that. But as churches grow and, 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 and as the church begins to get more people, we'll find that not everybody comes to worship. There are people who who come to cause division, who come to cause discord. I have witnessed it, front row seat to witness people show up. And by the time that they exited, three or six months later or a year later, the chaos and havoc that they had in that church, it was obvious that they did not come to be a worshiper. They came to sow discord. But I don't really worry as much about those people because they will never stop the will and purpose of God if the church does not allow to. Satan was using Judas to kill Jesus, but at the same time, Judas was being used to fulfill the divine plan of God. Satan was God's puppet. He was just his pawn that he was moving. He was playing right into fulfilling what the purpose of God was. John wrote in the Revelation, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she refused to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a sickbed. And those who commit these sins with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, Thyatira is a city that this is being written to. Notice what he says. To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching. That's the word. Who have learned? Who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. There was wicked immorality going on in this church. And Christ shows up through a letter. He, Revelation starts off with seven letters to churches that were scattered throughout Asia Minor. If you're going to understand the entire book of Revelation, you have to understand that the whole book is written to these seven churches. And you have to understand how those churches at that time would have understood the entire book of Revelation. That's the only way you can process that book properly is to understand how they would have understood it. They were the original audience. But it starts off before it's ever anything to do about prophecy. He's starting off and he's, he's talking to seven churches. And to this church in Thyatira, he's saying, you have this woman among you. Her name probably wasn't Jezebel. It's probably representative. Of Jezebel in the Old Testament, the wicked queen, but there was somebody in that church that was causing strife and bringing immorality and Christ said, I'm going to judge her. But for those of you who don't follow her teaching, it was a false doctrine that was in that church. Spiritual strongholds can be ideas and belief systems in our head that are not true. So that means that spiritual warfare is thinking right. This is how we wage spiritual warfare. It's thinking right and living right and treating other people right. Spiritual warfare is striving for peace and unity in the church. It's stopping gossip and rumors and backbitings. It's creating a culture of unity and love and care one for another. Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm." And then he goes on in the rest, this is Ephesians 6, if you want to read it for yourself later. When he talks about how we wage this war, he uses imagery from a Roman soldier who he would be very familiar with being in captivity. But he starts talking about the helmet and the breastplate and the sword and the shield. He's just using these as metaphors. But what's behind that, the reality behind these, this imagery is the way that we fight is through truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the Word of God. This is how Paul says we do spiritual warfare. Stuff we talk about all the time to live right and walk right in our everyday normal lives. This is nothing super spiritual or spooky or way out there like we hear a lot of times about spiritual warfare. This is, this is just how we live our lives as people of God. We live in truth. We live in righteousness. We have faith. We have salvation. We have the, he says you have the sword which is the Word of God. Just the, the normal everyday things is how we do battle. And then in verse 5 he says we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Arguments and opinions are external. They come from other people. We destroy those. Thoughts are internal. That's our thoughts. The the battle is won in our mind. We are going to have bad thoughts, every single one of us. I thank God that none of our heads are put on display on a screen that the thoughts that we have, the ideas that we have, I'm glad that it's not on a big screen for the whole world to see. None of us would want that. On any given day of our life, none of us would want that. That's the the battlefield is in our mind. But we take those thoughts. Paul says you take those thoughts captive. You cannot choose every thought that you dwell on or or that, that comes in your mind. You don't always get that. Uh, There there are things you're going to see, there are things you're going to hear, and that's going to create ideas and thoughts in your head. You can't control that. You can't control the the initial thought. What you can control is what you choose to dwell on. You decide whether or not you dwell on that thought. Set your affections, Paul said. You set your affections. Uh, You you hear about people, um, they fell in love. No, no, no. You better choose and decide what you're going to love. You better have control over your mind and heart to say, I am going to choose to love that person. I'm going to choose not to go that direction. It's an attitude and it's a choice. And so we take those self-defeating stories in our Head that say, you're not good enough, you're going to fall, you're going to, you're going to relapse back into whatever it is. We take those captive because the only voice that really matters in our lives is the voice of God. And so we pray to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. God, help us to be sensitive to Your Spirit to know that still small voice, to know that it is You speaking to us. One of the greatest enemies of our mind, one of the enemy's greatest weapons is fear. All of the junk on the news that feeds fear. I mean, it is a, it is just a content monster that just feeds fear into to people's minds and lives and. Uh, You do know, right, that bad stuff still happened when we were much younger. It just we didn't have the 24-hour news cycle to feed it to us. Like, there was always evil in the world. It's just we, you know, we did not have access to the reporting of it like we have now. There wasn't the Internet. There wasn't 24-hour news. um, And now we're made so much aware of what goes on in the world. John wrote, perfect love casts out all fear, for fear has torment. Fear of the past, fear of repeating the past, fear of being hurt, fear of financial failure, fear of of losing uh, careers, fear of what other people will think, fear of failure. And you know what every single one of these have in common? Why do you fear all those things? You fear them because you can't control them. We fear in our lives what we don't have the ability to control. And the reality is we control very, very little in our lives. And that's why we take comfort and peace in the sovereignty of God. God is over all. He rules all. He sees all. He knows the end from the beginning. He's the first and the last. The beginning and the end. He declares the end from the beginning. He is truly in control. If Christ is not in control, if God is not in control of the entire universe, if His ultimate purposes can be thwarted, then... We should all pack up right this second, go home and do something else with our lives. But if God isn't sovereign and control, we can trust Him. Faith in God destroys fear. And I would say to you this morning, trust Him, trust Him, trust Him. In the big picture of life, if you're part of the people of God, you have nothing to fear. Don't be afraid of the end times. I like to distinguish this and say, understand that the end times according to Scripture, 1 uh, Peter, Hebrews, uh, according to Scripture the end times are the, it is the time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. That is the end times. Uh, it has not, the end times are not defined by what happens in the news, by what happens in the political world. The end times are defined by Scripture as the time between the first and second coming of Christ. But don't be afraid of that. People are afraid because they can't control it. You know, what's, what's going to come in, in the future? So Paul writes, and this is where I said earlier, we'll kind of wrap up with uh, reading in 2 Corinthians 5, the other side of that. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He's speaking of, in verse 15, he talks about the coming of the Lord. So a major idea in the New Testament is that Christ is going to come back. And this is something that all Christianity, while Christianity can't agree on how it's going to happen and the order of events and all that, don't get so caught up in that that you miss the fact that the reality is Christ really is going to return. Like Jesus is coming back to this earth. That is, take it to the bank, it's in Scripture. This mess of the world will not always go on like it is. Christ will return. And so Paul writes, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of god and the dead in christ shall rise first then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the lord now i don't want to get off on too much of a tangent here but you know the the idea is that we are we're caught up if this is literal then it to call caught, caught up to meet the Lord in the air um, there is zero scripture to say that we're going to leave the earth and go anywhere else uh, the idea is that we would be caught up to meet him in the air and the language that he's Paul's using here uh, is cultural language he's using language that they used uh, long before the Roman Empire, and then the Roman Empire comes, and then we call it Caesar language. The people would see a, the Caesar or royalty coming from outside the city. They would go out of the city, they would meet him, and then they would escort him back. They would, that's the language here. It is a language of escorting the royalty back to their home, back to their city. We are going to be caught up to escort Christ back. The language that we're going to go anywhere else, that we're going to go to heaven, anything like that, the language is not there in the text. The language is we're going to be caught up to meet with Him, and then we're going to be with the Lord forever. Regardless of how you see how all this plays out, that's not even the primary point of the text. The point of the text is in verse 18, where Paul says, Comfort one another with these words. The whole idea why he writes this is to say, Your comfort is in the fact that all of this suffering and persecution is not going to last forever. The point is Christ is going to return and that is our comfort. If the return of Christ scares you, you have misoriented what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If I love Christ and I'm in a relationship with Him, shouldn't I want to see Him? Shouldn't I want to be with Him? I'm already not really with the Lord. I mean, I'm I'm filled with His Spirit, but Paul says to be... To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To to be at home in the body, we're not actually with Christ right now. We have His essence. We have His presence. But I have not seen Him face to face. And if I really love Him, if I have a relationship with Him, if I'm worshiping Him, if I'm a disciple of Him, should I not want to see Him? Should I not want to look upon His face and bow before Him and worship Him? Why would I be afraid of Him coming back? He's my Savior. He's he's redeemed me. I, I want to worship Him in person. And this is what's going to happen. Christ is going to return and set up His kingdom. And in the Revelation, it talks about the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of the Lord and our Christ. He's going to write all of creation through humanity. That is the big story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is humanity messed it all up. And through humanity, He is going to make His creation right through the person of Jesus Christ and through His people. It's not supposed to scare us. It's a promise to the child of God. Paul wrote <clears throat> to the church of Corinth, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And this, is, this term is already, it's in our culture, outside of just religion, it's just in the culture. That's really become a thorn in my flesh. It's like a pain in my neck. Uh, and that's where this comes from. As Paul says, a messenger of Satan was given to me to be a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn was. We don't know exactly what, what the issue was there. But Paul says, you know, God, please take this away from me. And God's answer is this, my grace is sufficient to you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore, I'm going to boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. This is, this is hard for us to process because we have this deliverance mentality that we, God's supposed to deliver us from anything that hurts us or causes us pain. If it hurts us and causes us pain, it can't be the will of God. Paul says, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The messenger of Satan came against Paul, and his response was not to fight with the messenger. His response was to seek God. That's how he did spiritual warfare. I'm going to seek the face of God. 2 Corinthians Corinthians 10, 4-5 The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of god and take every thought captive to obey christ we are in spiritual warfare in our minds against arguments and opinions and thoughts and we destroy those arguments and opinions by preaching truth by teaching truth by instilling right thinking into the minds of people that is empowered through the infusion of the power of the holy spirit word and spirit in people's lives. That's how we wage war against the Satan. We take captive every thought. The reason we don't live according to our emotions and we don't allow our emotions to dictate our choices is because our emotions are often a response made by the argument of the enemy. And every sin, every sin in your life that you commit is a spiritual stronghold. So instead of trying to chase devils, try laying your heart bare before the glory of God and let His Word and the Spirit cleanse you. That's how you wage war, by saying, Search me, O God, and know my thoughts. Try me and know my ways, and if there be any unclean thing in me, take it out of me. Pray that prayer of David. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Why? Because that sin is a spiritual stronghold that needs to be destroyed. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, Paul writes, those who are perishing, the God of this world, lowercase g, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The Satan blinds the minds of people so they can't see the light of the gospel. That's how the enemy works. That's why people go through life. How could they go through life and not see what you see? It's because they are blind. They can't see the glory of God. One of the greatest needs of our culture, of our generation, is God, let them see your glory. The masses of humanity stumble through life unaware of the stunning display of God's glory in the heavens and in the world around them. They fail to ponder the reality that the cliché, the sky is the limit, means the universe is infinite. The fish in the sea and the animals in the jungle, they tell of God's imagination and His delight in the variety of creation. That God has imagination and He shows it to us through His creation. The night sky paints a picture of the creative Word of God. Genesis, He made the stars also. The inability to see God's glory is part of the curse of sin. Scientists will peer into the night sky. Poets will write of a lover's delight. An artist will draw the beauty of nature and all catch a glimpse of God's creativity, but they will miss God's glory in that creativity. That's why Paul says He delivers us from the domain of darkness. You don't find light by yourself. You don't find that glory by yourself unless He delivers you from that domain and transfers you into the kingdom of His Son. You can't save yourself. You can't save anyone else. What you can do is shine the light of the gospel. That is spiritual warfare. That is biblical spiritual warfare, shining the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every sermon we preach is spiritual warfare. Every time we lay a foundation of biblical truth in somebody's life, that is spiritual warfare. Every time we tell a child about the love of Jesus, we are waging war against the enemy. That's how we fight and that's how we win. Peter would write, We're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness. So God calls you out of darkness into His marvelous light we pull out of that, we we pull verses out of scripture. Where we pluck verses and read that, and that's a very well-known scripture. But Peter is dealing here with people who are suffering probably more than any other book in the New Testament. First Peter deals with the people of God suffering from persecution. And his answer to that is don't forget that he called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. And I close with this scripture. 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled face. So what he's talking about with an unveiled face, he's talking about, and this is in the verses before this that I'm not going to read. He's telling the story about Moses in the Old Testament. Moses goes up into the mountain to talk to God when Moses comes back down, the Bible says that Moses' face, because he had been with God, Moses' face shined so bright with light that people could not look at Moses. And they had to take a veil and put a veil over Moses' face so that he could even speak to the people, because he had such an experience with God on the mountaintop. And so Paul tells this story in 2 Corinthians, and then Paul says, and we all with unveiled face. So we're taking the veil off, and now we're beholding the glory of the Lord too. And this is, how, this is how sanctification works. I wrote 50,000 words on this verse. This was the verse that I looked at and said, this is what sanctification is. Sanctification is being transformed into the image of God. Sanctification is not me saying, now you do this, do this, do this, do this, and don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, and now you will be saved. Sanctification is you, yourself, not me doing it for you. Sanctification is you standing in the presence of God, under the authority of His Word, in the presence of His Spirit. Unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into that image. And then here's, what I love about this verse from one degree of glory to another it does not happen overnight who in here is exactly like Christ not me we say we're Christians it's supposed to mean Christ-like well it should be like kind of Christ-like like I'm kind of like Christ because I have areas in my life and so do you that are not at all Christ-like but Paul says we stand in in the glory of God, and we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. It's incremental. The rest of our lives, we continue to be transformed like Christ. The wonderful Eugene Peterson, who is my personal favorite author of all time, been more impactful personally than any other writer, Eugene Peterson said, In my early days of pastoring, I thought my job and role as a pastor was to show up in the lives of people and say here's what God's going to do in your life. I'm going to bring to you the work of God in your life. He said as I grew and matured and and dealt with people for years, I realized that really wasn't how it worked. God called me to show up in the lives of people and to participate in what He was already doing in their lives. God's already working in your life and a man of God shows up and says, Here, let me participate in this because it's, so much, it's not about me, it's, it's about God and His work. The language becomes language of participation. Show us your glory. We preach the Word. His Word is light and it transforms us. The glory fills this place. The presence of God fills this room and His Spirit is light. We are temples of the Holy Spirit and His light is inside of us. We carry that light every single day and we don't rely on our emotions to dictate whether or not the light is inside of us because there are days where you will wake up and you will feel so close to God and it just, you know, I'm walking with God today and I'm kind of, I'm there, I'm in sync with Him. And there will be other days. You wake up and God feels like He's a million miles away. God, where are you? Do you even hear my prayers? The the, the heavens you know, the heavens are brass and the ceiling is lead and it's just nothing is getting out of this room. I don't even know if God hears my prayer and hears my cry. Let me tell you, God hears you. God knows, because we're not captive to our emotions, we're not captive to our feelings. What we are We're people who are being transformed into the image of God from one degree of glory to another. For the rest of our lives, we're trying to be like Christ, want to please Him, want to make Him happy, want to honor Him, want to reflect His glory in the world. I've often used the analogy of children, and I'll have people that will see, have seen my kids, and especially now my youngest, and we'll go home back to where we're from here in a couple weeks, And I know there'll be people that will see him and they will say things like, oh my goodness, he's gotten so big. Like He's grown so much. And you know what? I know he has, but I've never seen it. It's not, I mean, because I I see him every day. It's not like I get up and go, wow, you really grew last night. Well, no. He he did, but I don't, but I've done that with other people's kids. I'll see somebody's kid and go, "Well, it happened yesterday. I saw somebody's, 13-year-old child that I had not seen in quite a while and I was I was stepped back because so I can't believe that's the same person. I saw pictures of somebody's kids this week online and uh, to me they're supposed to still be five years old and now they're teenagers. Uh, why? Uh, because they grew incrementally. It is this way in your faith walk. You will think you're not making any progress because it is God's way of growth is slow. It's how He does it in nature, and it's how He does it spiritually. You'll think, I'm not really growing. But what will happen as you continue this faith walk is you'll find a point, and you'll look back six months, you'll look back a year, and you'll go, wow, I am not the same person I was a year ago. You'll get down this road five years from now, and you'll say, I don't even recognize the person I was five years ago because I'm, I'm growing. I'm being transformed into the image of God. And if you do it that way, that is true spiritual growth. Yes, the church has standards. Yes, the church should push forth and say, we believe this and we believe in not practicing this. A million times, yes, the church should assert those ideas. I'm not saying it shouldn't. But ultimately, your salvation lies not in obedience to a church, but obedience to the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You this morning for Your Word. And as, as, we, as we talk about the transforming power of Your Spirit, we know that your Spirit is here even right now, transforming our hearts and our lives. And not just in this worship service today, but throughout this week, Lord, your Spirit is going to be present. And through situations that may be painful, that may cause us to struggle, that through those things, your Spirit is working to cause us, us to grow, to cause us to mature in you, and to reflect your glory and your image more perfectly. So, Lord, I ask you as we go our way this week, as we live our ordinary lives Lord that your glory and your strength would be present there to help us Lord, to be with us. Help us to feel Your Spirit near, to feel the joy and the comfort of the Holy Spirit that does indwell inside of us. I pray, Lord, that You would grant us direction for our lives. I know that that we are all people who have to make choices and decisions that affect every area of our life. And I pray, Lord, that You would grant us wisdom in these areas to make good, faithful choices that would honor Your name and make much of Jesus Christ, and we ask this this morning in the name that is above every name, the name of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, amen. God bless you this morning.